Let me begin with a, a question for you this morning. Are, are you living on purpose? Uh, while you're thinking about that, let me point out the obvious. That question presupposes uh, another question. So let me ask that question first. Do you know what your purpose is? Are you succeeding in living out your purpose? That's what we're going to be thinking about this morning. This morning as we come to Genesis 21, before we come to see Abram living on purpose, we're going to notice a couple of other things. God's complete faithfulness and God's surprising grace. So first of all, God's complete faithfulness, the opening verses of the chapter. In the opening verses of Genesis 21, we have a story about a woman well on in years giving birth to a son. In verse 5, we're told that Abram, the child's father, is 100 years old. Earlier in the narrative, way back in chapter 17, we discovered that Abram's wife, Sarah, is 10 years his junior. So if I've got my sums right, that means that Sarah's 90 years old when she gives birth to her son. Now... It's worth mentioning at this point that there may be some exaggeration in the recording of Abram's age throughout these narratives. In the ancient Near East, exaggerating a person's age was an accepted way of honoring them. I don't think we'd do that nowadays, would we? He's a great guy. He's 120 years old. Um, even so, there's no reason to doubt that Abram and Sarah are well on in years and that they're certainly beyond the age when they could normally expect to be having children by natural means. The, the narratives all make that clear. So this birth is nothing short of a miracle, the kind of miracle which God would perform over and over again in the history of his people. And all of these miracles, they, they only build anticipation for the greatest birth miracle of all, the, the birth of, of Jesus, which we're going to celebrate in a few weeks' time. When the biblical writer tells us in verse 2, in this matter-of-fact sort of a way, that Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abram in his old age, the narrator is downplaying the, the massive significance of this event. Any birth of a child is a huge event. We, we know that but this one even more so. This is the child of promise. Everything has been leading up to this birth and everything is hanging on it. Everything that we've been learning about the life of Abram prepares us for this birth, but nothing explains it. God does it. Abram and Sarah bring only their, their tired and spent bodies. God brings the miracle of new life. Did you, did you notice God's grace in this? Have a look at those opening verses. Verse 1, now the Lord was gracious to Sarah as he said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. This son was born to Sarah because of God's grace. Nothing that Sarah had done or Abraham had done brought about this birth. God did it. Friends, every child is a gift from God. Those who are parents know that. But so much more in our lives is a gift 
so much more than we ever imagine. Every breath that we take, every beat of our hearts, they're all given. Our intellect and our capacities, our gifts, all of a gracious God. Our families and our friends are given to us every moment of every new day, nothing to take for granted, a gift from God, something to be given back to God in love and gratitude. Do you see that? Are you grateful today? Up until this point in the Abram narrative, Sarah's been very much in the, the back seat. But here at the birth of her son, we, we find her center stage. Look at verse 7. She's overcome with joy. God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. If you've been paying attention to the story, you'll know that Sarah's laughed before, actually. Back then, it was a laugh of unbelief. Or even a laugh, I think, maybe of pain. God had dangled the carrot of a child, dangled the carrot of fertility before a barren couple, and then he seemed to sit on his hands for year after year and watch them advance towards a daughtery old age. Sarah's laugh back then was a cynical laugh because she knew what all women would know when she's past her time of bearing children. And she would have known too that 99-year-old men aren't best suited to helping women with their cause. Previously, Sarah had been laughing through disbelief. But now, her cynical laughter's turned to joy. God has given her the only thing she ever wanted, the one thing that she thought she could never have. Friends, this Abram story, I think some of you have reflected this back to me. You've been struck by how a, an ancient story can feel very contemporary at times. And it touches here on one of the most profound aspects of our humanity, the whole question of having children. The story's reminded us of the excruciating pain that often comes with childlessness. We've been reminded today of the, the unique joy that the birth of a child can bring, but, but the story's been honest about the joy and the sorrow. No part of life's experience has been left out. The only thing I want to say about that this morning is that if we want to be an authentic, an authentic community of God's people here at Hamilton Road, we need to be open to not only the joys, but also the sorrows that people here experience. We want to learn to do what Paul urges us to do in Romans 12, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Any community that doesn't allow room for both the, the, the rejoicing and the mourning isn't reflecting fully the life of God in it. We've noticed God's grace to Sarah and her joyful response, but notice how it's all predicated on God's complete faithfulness. Look again at verse 1. The Lord was gracious to Sarah as he said. 
And he did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abram in his old age at the very time God had promised. So this gracious birth would have astonished anybody who was watching on, but it shouldn't have surprised Abram or Sarah. Why is that? Because it's precisely what God had promised. Think about that for a second. Did we really think there'd be any other outcome? We read these stories of a, a promise decades before. I'm going to make you a family. A promise I'm going to give you a son. The son will come from your own. All these promises. Did we really think that after God promised a son and that Sarah would bear the son and that it would happen within the next year, did we really think anything else could possibly happen? Of course not. God is faithful to his promises. Always, every one of them, all the time. It seems like such a simple point, it hardly seems worth making. And yet, I struggle to live in the light of it. And so, I think, do you? What do I mean? Imagine for a moment how different your life would be if you really learned to live in the light of the complete faithfulness of God. Think for a moment about some of God's promises available to us all. God promises if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all righteousness. Are you carrying guilt in your life today? You need not. If only we confess our sin to God, he has promised that he'll forgive us and he will not break that promise. Think now of Jesus' promise to his disciples as he returned to the Father. Surely I am with you always. Have you felt alone at any point recently? As though nobody sees you, nobody understands, nobody cares. You need not. The God of the universe has promised that he will be with you forever. He will not break that promise. One last promise for now. To those who love Jesus, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live. Do you fear death? You need not. The Savior of the world who died and rose again goes ahead of you. He promises you life on this side of the grave and beyond. He will not break that promise. God kept his promises to Abram and Sarah. The God of Abram is a promise-making, promise-keeping God. Confidence in the complete faithfulness of God is absolutely fundamental if we're to grow as faithful followers of Jesus Christ. The writer to the Hebrews tells us, without such faith, it is impossible to please God. 
Friends, let's learn to live in the light of the complete faithfulness of God. We've thought about God's complete faithfulness. As we read on in this story, we're confronted by God's surprising grace. It's not all laughter in Genesis 21. Or it might be better to say the laughter is not all of the same kind. Sarah's laughter in the opening scene is one of pure joy. In the second scene, verse 9, there's a mocking laughter which leads to conflict. We're reminded straight away of something we, we know. When things go well for us, people don't always share our joy. Not everyone is re ready to celebrate our successes with us. One of my earliest memories of bringing baby Sophie home to our house was of, of Patrick's repeated attempts to try and kill her. Um, she must have internalized that experience because I remember then a couple of years later uh, coming into a room to, to see wee Ruby, a few weeks old at the time, howling. Went and tried to inspect her to see what was wrong and I saw bite marks on her tummy. A welcome from her big sister. It, it's a traumatic time for a child when you bring a, a new child into the, the home to have a new baby dumped on you. Well, there's a, a bit of that in this story. The new baby causing tension in Sarah's household, particularly with his half-brother Ishmael. You might remember hearing about Ishmael a few weeks ago. He was born to Sarah's maidservant, Hagar, part of that surrogate motherhood scheme which Sarah and Abram came up with. That was some 14 years ago now, though. So in verse 9, we read about this teenage Ishmael, and he doesn't take too kindly to this new little brother arriving in the family. He's mocking him and his mother. Sarah asks Abram to have them removed. Get rid of the slave girl and her son, for that slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with my son Isaac. That, that request from Sarah to disinherit Ishmael, it, it might sound harsh, but, but actually it was entirely common practice. Historians have discovered a law code of the time uh, in a similar culture that bears this clause. If a slave bears children and the father then grants freedom to her and her children, then the children of the slave shall not divide the estate with the children of the former master. Sarah's demand to expel Hagar and Ishmael are actually quite normal and reasonable in the culture. So to cut a short story even shorter, God encourages Abram to grant Sarah her request. Hagar and Ishmael, they're given food and water and they're sent on their way. Under the hot desert sun, the water doesn't last long. Before long, they're without water and without hope. And you get a real sense of the despair there in verse 16. You see how desperate things have become. Hagar is waiting for her son to die. Does this scene remind you of anything? 
That's right. Hagar's been in the desert before. Last time as an expectant mother, this time as the, the mother of her son. Flick back with me to chapter 16. We're told there in verse 7 that the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a, a spring in the desert. Hagar, if you remember, she was so moved by this experience of being uh, noticed and seen by God that she gives God this very beautiful name in chapter 16, verse 13. You are the God who sees me. Well, here she is, 14 years later, deja vu. What's going to happen this time? If you flick back to chapter 21, if you look with me at verse 17, what we discover is that God heard the boy crying. The God who saw Hagar all those years ago now hears her son. And he provides for him. He shows Hagar a well in verse 19. He not only provides them with their immediate need of, of water, that, that's their pressing need, they need a drink, but he also promises to make Ishmael into a great nation, verse 18. We're thinking here about God's surprising grace. We're told, verse 20, God was with the boy as he grew up. Even Ishmael, God grants his presence. Isn't that astounding? If you have some picture of God in your head who is the God who loves some and does not love the others, you don't have a biblical picture of God in your head. In this short episode, we're given another glimpse of God's grace to the outsider. It's a recurring theme in the Bible. Hagar and Ishmael, they're not the center of this story, but yet God's active with his mercy and He's active in their lives every bit as much as in, in the lives of others. Nobody lives beyond the grace of God. God's grace has long arms. What would it mean for us if we learned to live increasingly in the light of God's surprising grace? We'd learn that there are no outsiders to his love. We'd stop banishing those who don't fit our schemes and learn to live with the larger vision of God. We'd learn to pray that God would make us alert to those who live in the margins of our society, the ethnic minorities and the poor, those with disabilities, the underprivileged and the unpopular. We'd foster a spirit of compassion that allows us always to hear their cries, always to notice their tears, and to move toward them in compassion in the name of God. We've thought about God's complete faithfulness to Sarah. We've noticed his surprising grace to Hagar. We haven't said much about Abram yet today, so we'll finish with him. It's wonderful to see his ongoing development in this chapter. We'll see that he's increasingly living on purpose. We read, we didn't read it, but let your eye run over those last verses. We read of another encounter with Abimelech, the Philistine king. 
This time Abimelech comes to Abram looking for a non-aggression treaty between them and succeeding generations. We read that in verse 22, it's some indication how God has blessed Abram that this itinerant shepherd has kings coming with their commanders to, to make treaties with him. Abram's relations with Abimelech must have been quite secure at this stage. We see that verse 25 and following. Abram takes the opportunity to iron out another matter with Abimelech. While you're here, could you sort out that matter of the well that your men stole from me? Feels, feels a bit awkward. But after a brief negotiation, the matter is settled. Abimelech returns to the land of the Philistines. Observing their interactions, you get this sense that there's a, a mutual respect between Abram and Abimelech. I can't spend too much time on this incident, but notice the wonderful thing Abimelech says. Verse 22. God is with you in everything you do. The pagan king comes to the man of God and he recognizes the presence of God in him. This is what I mean when I say that Abram is living on purpose. One of my jobs here as manager of members of our staff team is to have an annual review with them. And the way I do that is to evaluate their work against their job description. If we have employed somebody to do A, B, and C, it wouldn't be fair to evaluate them against D and E. So we use the job description, what's written there, to check whether a person is working and they're on task, whether they're on purpose. What about Abram? How do we evaluate him? What's his job description? Flick back with me for a second to chapter 12. That's the opening scene. That's where we started in our Abram story. God tells Abram that he'll bless him, that he'll make him a big nation, a great nation. But look at what he says about what Abram will do. Those opening verses of chapter 12. You will be a blessing. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Like so many promises of the Old Testament, it would only know its, its full and final fulfillment in the son of Abram, in Jesus Christ. He's the one who will finally bring full blessing to all the nations. Next Sunday, uh, as we begin our Advent journey, we'll, we'll start to look more closely at the coming of Jesus. But for now, Abram's living on purpose. He's fulfilling the job description God has given him. What do I mean? Well, look at what he's doing. He's blessing the nations. He's making peace treaties. He's settling dangerous disputes. He's blessing the nations. He's living in such a way that pagan kings come to him and they look at him and they say, God is in you. And I see it. God is with you in everything you do. This is Abram's calling. This is God's purpose that God's given him. Abram's only the first of the people of God to have mediated God's presence 
to the people around him in this kind of way. If you read on in the narrative, you discover similar things are said of Isaac and of Jacob. Do you remember how the spirit, or how, how pagan Pharaoh recognized the spirit of God in Joseph there in the court in Egypt? Do you, do you remember how something similar happened centuries later for Daniel in the court of the, the pagan Nebuchadnezzar? The biblical writers, Old and New Testament, repeatedly re-articulate God's calling on his people to be a blessing to the nations. Isaiah calls Israel, he says, Arise, shine, for your light has come. Nations will come to your light, kings to the brightness of your dawn. Jesus, he took Israel's mantle and handed it to his disciples, the new Israel, when he said to them, you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before men that they would see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Paul changes the language, but still the, the charge is the same. He calls us to the same purpose. He calls us to conduct ourselves in such a way that we serve as pillars and foundations of the truth. Or to live in the world in such a way as to make the, the teaching about God our Savior attractive. All of these verses right throughout Scripture calling pe God's people to live in a way that we bless the nations, all the peoples of the earth. God is with you in everything you do, says Abimelech. Isn't it just glorious? I find this such a wonderful calling, such a wonderful possibility. It fills me with, with real hope to think that God might occasionally and one day be visible in my life for other people to see. I would love that for this place. I'd love us to be known in Bangor as the place where you can see what God is like. Nothing excites me more than to find my place in the, in, in the purposes of God. As I close, let me show you the most exciting thing of all. Abimelech, we're told, chapter 21, noticed the presence of God, but notice when it happened. It happened after the shambles of chapter 20. Do you remember chapter 20? Do you see what this means? I don't need to be perfect for God to use me. It means that we aren't disqualified from the purposes of God at our first mistake. My past failures don't rule me out of living on purpose. Even in our weakness and in spite of our failings, the light of Christ, the life of Christ can and does shine through so friends, let's throw open our lives. Let's invite a new visitation of the Holy Spirit on us so that we can increasingly live before our family and our friends, before our neighbors and our colleagues. And, and let's, let's long for the day when they say, as Abimelech said to Abram, God is with you in everything you 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for refreshing us this morning in your word, reminding us of your surprising grace. Your grace pops up in places where we don't expect to see it. Thank you for that. Thank you for your complete faithfulness. Lord, if ever we doubt that, reassure us today. And Lord, we thank you that whether we come to Jesus for the first time today or whether we have walked with Jesus for many years and have lost our way, we can be restored to our calling. Give us your spirit, we pray. Let us be the light of the world, the salt of the earth. Make us more and more into what you called us to be. Lord, we thank you that our past failures don't rule that out, but that your grace makes it possible.